name. Amen. All right, so how many of you guys like getting your picture taken? One, oh, there's a couple people that actually like it. Y'all are weird. <laughs> I know that's like the rest of us are looking at you like, that is nuts, right? Most of us hate getting our picture taken. And part of it's because you've got some reason, right? You're like, I hate my smile, right? Every teenage boy ever has that school picture that's like, Right? They refuse to let anybody see their teeth, right? Um, or, you're, you know, when the photographer's going to take your picture, you're like, it's only from the shoulders up, right? right? Like, we're not going to look at this part down here. Or, or I've heard people, like, I'm an, actually an amateur photographer. Like, I've done a couple weddings, I've done a couple things, and I've actually heard people say, just don't show it to me afterwards. You can take my picture, I just don't want to see it. I want to pretend like it doesn't exist, Right? See, the problem is when you look at a picture of you, I bet you have said, do I really look like that? Have you ever had that thought where you're like, I swear that is not how I look? <laughs> you see a picture of you. And so usually like a professional photographer and good lighting, right, those things can help, right? Those are when you get better pictures. Check out this one. Professional lighting, right? Um, good camera. Um, I look like an old white Mr. T youth pastor. Like, I pity the fool who doesn't keep themselves pure until marriage. I have no idea what I would... You guys let me walk around for like a month like that. Nobody told me. And, and then I got my picture taken... And I tell you what, it was less than 24 hours and I had shaved my head off, I had trimmed my beard down, right? Because even with good lighting, with a, a good camera, there's really no excuse for that picture to look bad, right? The photographer looked at that and he's like, this is the best I can do, <laughs> right? And you guys know how it is, right? Like the, the pictures that get taken of you matter, right? Have you ever seen somebody that's like, Right? Like, they, they know all the right angles, and their body can't possibly do the things in real life that are in the picture, but that's how they look good. Always from above, winky face. You guys remember the duck face? <laughs> Girls would, like, look like they were sipping on spaghetti or something. Like, I don't, like, we, we do all this thing, and then, and then you'll spend 15 minutes trying to take a good picture of yourself, and then you'll spend, like, a solid minute of fury, just like, delete, 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 delete. And the worst are candid pictures. Oh, like this one. Oh, not that one. That one. Oh, that's me on the left. That's me. And there are so many things that I hate about that picture, right? I'm like, the, I got this like snaggle tooth, baby face, shaved head camo thing going on. And it was not working in 2009 and it wouldn't ever work, right? But somebody caught that. I didn't even know that picture existed until I found it on Facebook. Right? I didn't, we were out playing paintball in the woods. Apparently somebody had a camera. Oh my gosh. The candid ones are the worst. You can make that go away, by the way. I put a blank slide up, I promise. Um, why do we hate getting our picture taken so much? Right? Why, why do we hate the candid photos of ourselves? 
It's because we have an idea in our mind of what we really look like, right? And it's usually the best version of me, right? The best version of how I look is what lives in my mind. I want to believe that I am better looking than either of those pictures, right? I want to feel as good about me as possible. We all do. And that's why we hate the pictures, because sometimes they expose how you really look, right? I want to feel as good about me as possible, so I will take a ton of selfies, selfie after one, after another, after another, until I finally get the one that really looks like me. The other 92 didn't look like me, but that one, now I'm satisfied. That's how I look, right? And we look for good lighting or, or we do the weird thing with our body or whatever the thing is, right? How many of you guys have a good mirror and a bad mirror, right? It's like the lighting at the gym looks awesome and then you get home and you're like, what happened when I got in the car, right? Like something changed. See, the mirrors aren't the thing that's changing, the lighting is a little bit different, right? But see, the thing is, we actually, we have this problem where we refuse to see ourselves. We want to see the best version, not the real version, right? If somebody were to put two pictures side by side of you and one of them looked really good and one of them looked really bad, our natural instinct would be to, oh, I look like the good one. That other one was a, boy, that's a bummer that it looks so bad. I don't know what happened. See, and when we, we do, we do this thing where we actually don't want to see ourselves, but when we do, it inspires us to change something, right? Like, for me, no more mohawks. That one's, or that, whatever that mushroom thing, it was supposed to be a mohawk, and then, I don't know. And maybe I'm always going to have a beard, but I'm always going to keep it trim, right? I've got some rules now after I have seen these pictures. You know, the other day, I was working outside in my yard without my shirt on, which is fine because I've got five acres of privacy, right? So I'm out there just trying to get a tan, working, and then I walked past my own window. <laughs> oh my gosh, right? Like that reflection, I was like, I have got to change something. So I put on a t-shirt. <laughs> but really, when you see yourself, you, you want to change, like when you see the real you, you're like, oh man, I've got to do something about this. And you see, photos of me aren't the only time that I refuse to see the real me. You know what I mean? But there are parts of who we are, or parts of how we act. And a lot like that photo, we've got this mental picture of who we are, and so we just sort of don't look. We just don't see it. I don't, I don't want to actually acknowledge that that's a problem in my life. I don't want to see that. That's not really true, right? Just like that bad picture's not really us. And see, here's the thing. You refuse to actually see the real you, and then nothing changes. It's when we see ourselves in the window or the picture that we want to do so. It's when we see ourselves that we change. So when we refuse to, nothing changes. You might say, I, I just cannot seem to get over my addiction to pornography. I've tried. I, I don't want that. I just, I can't seem to get over it. Nothing has changed for years. 
right? Or maybe you've got an alcohol problem, but you won't even admit it to yourself. And everybody else in your life would be like, this should change. But it never does. Or you've had bitterness that's eating at you for years. It's like nothing ever feels like it gets better when you think about that person. Or months have gone by and you still haven't started doing that thing that you said you were going to start doing. That thing that God put on your heart. See, on, on one hand, we've got this thing that says, that's not the real me. That's not true. We ignore it. We refuse it. But then I think some of the deepest parts of us feel like we're stuck. We're trapped in this cycle, longing to be free from some of these things. And so we have this tension. I don't want to look at it, but somewhere inside of me, man, I would love to be free from this. That's going to set the stage for what I want to talk to you guys about today. And we're, we're going to be in John chapter 8. We're going back into our, the book of John. And we left off kind of halfway through um, chapter 8. And so we're going to go back into that. And I think that Jesus speaks to this problem. And so to get us there, I, I want to kind of explain the story a little bit differently than maybe we've been going through it. See, at this point in chapter 8 of John, Jesus has been doing his thing for about two and a half years. He's got a three-year-long ministry, so he's actually getting kind of close to the end. So he's been teaching about who he is. He's been healing people and doing kingdom things, right? He's been teaching them about why he's here. And then there is this constant message that we see that courses through the entire book of John. The author, John, when he wrote down Jesus' story, he made sure 84 different times to talk about belief. All the way through the book of John, there's this theme of believing. 84 different times. I looked it up. Matthew talks about it nine times. Mark, 15. Luke, 10 times. There's something about John. He's like, when I tell the story of Jesus, I want to make sure that we are talking about belief, about faith, about trusting Jesus Right? He's got, like in John chapter 1, in verse 12, he says, to those who believed in Jesus' name, he gave them the right to become children of God. If you believe, you can become a child of God. John 3.16, that one's famous, right? Like, that's on Tim Tebow's eye patches, and you guys all know it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 5.24 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Belief. And then he wraps it up. The end of his book, he basically says, this is why I wrote everything down. In John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you might have life in his name. So all the way through the book of John, believe, believe, believe. And he ties it to life. Salvation. Right? Like, you're supposed to be in line to die. You're supposed to be in line for death. But if you believe, you can get out of that line. Jesus will rescue you from that fate. And you can have eternal life. Belief leads to life. That's John's theme 
And so we're going to pick up this story. Jesus is a ways into this, two and a half years into this, and he finds himself in the temple. And he's going to talk about belief. In John 8, 21, it starts like this. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Now, there is a lot that we could unpack here, right? There's some theology built in here. There's some important words. I want to zoom out of the words and the details for a second, and I just want you to picture the conversation itself and how this went, right? Jesus says, hey guys, I, I'm not going to be here forever, and where I'm going, you can't go because you're going to die in your sin. And they go, where's he going? And then he says, okay, so um, like you guys don't get it. I'm not from here. Um, I told you that you're going to die in your sins if you don't believe. Who are you? They asked. They almost like awkwardly refuse to hear what he says about them. It's like he can't, it's almost like he has to slap them and say, you're going to die in your sin. He repeats it three times in just these few verses. And they won't listen. And he says, he's basically like, do you, do you even see yourself clearly? Do you see you here? Because it seems like you only want to talk about me, and I'm trying to help you. You're going to die in your sin. And here's the problem. The Jews didn't see themselves clearly. Right? They thought that they were born right with God. Good Jews go to heaven. That's the deal. I'm Jewish. As long as I don't screw it up, really, I'm okay. In fact, when they used the word sin and sinner, they were usually talking about prostitutes, right? There were tax collectors and sinners. That's, that's what the word meant. To, for them, it was like this idea of sin was so horrible, like off the rails. And I'm not that. So when he says, you're going to die in your sins, they're like, Must be, that's not talking about me. That's not a picture of me. They can't hear it. They refuse to look at their real condition. Now, it's a good thing that our world isn't like that now, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a good thing that, that our world, our, the people that you guys talk to, the people that we interact with in this culture, it's a good thing that when you say something about their sin, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. And that never happens, right? People flat out don't think that there's anything wrong with them, right? D.L. Moody, a famous theologian, said, you have to get people lost before you can get them saved. Like, sometimes you actually have to convince people that they're lost before you can convince them that they should be saved. And then, did you catch it in here that he said, you guys are going to die in your sins. Like, you, you are already hell-bound. 
unless you believe. Did you catch that part? He said, if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Unless you believe. Back to that theme in the book of John. Now remember, they just asked him, who are you? That was their response. So he keeps going. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you. I I imagine in this moment, he's like, man, I want to just wring your neck. But he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I've heard from him, I will tell the world. So basically, like, God doesn't want me to chew you out. (laughs) They didn't understand that he was telling them about his father, though. He said, the one who sent me. And so he gets even more specific. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, that's one of his favorite phrases for himself, the Son of Man. It comes out of Daniel. He's referring to himself as the Messiah because of the prophecy out of Daniel. And he says, when you have lifted me up, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And even as he spoke, many believed in him. When he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. And you want to know what? If you know the story, I think that makes a lot of sense. If you know the actual crucifixion story, the moment that they put him on the cross, the day changed, right? Like everything started to change about that day. And for three hours, there was darkness in the land. Like an eclipse never lasts three hours. It's it's like not explainable. It was dark. It just felt different. And then the moment that Jesus gave up his last breath, there was an earthquake that shook the entire area and it hurt the temple. It wrecked the temple enough that the the curtain that separated God from man in their religious practice was torn in two. Everything about their life changed in that moment. When you've lifted me up, then you're going to know. Then you're going to, when you kill me, then you're going to know that I'm from God. You imagine that feeling? Can you imagine how they felt, the people who heard that and then experienced that? Man. But I love the very end of this, verse 30. Even as he spoke, many believed. Remember John's theme? Belief leads to life. Some of these guys got it, right? Some of these people, they were listening and they were like, wait a minute, wait. I believe. I believe in you, Jesus. And see, most of you guys, if you're in a church, most of you have crossed that line of faith. Most of you have put your faith in Jesus. Most of you have believed, right? For me, I was, I was 10 years old. When did it happen for you? Were you a kid? Were you an adult? Was it last year? Is it next month? Right? For some of you guys, it was 20 years, 50 years that you've been a believer. And at that moment, you were freed from the punishment of sin. Remember that John 5, 24, he said that you have crossed from death to life, right? You deserve death, you deserve hell, but you have crossed into life, you get heaven. You've been freed from the punishment of sin. Now, maybe you haven't crossed that line yet. Maybe you're here And you're like, no, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about this. And in this moment, so many years ago, Jesus was pleading with these people to acknowledge their sin and believe in him. And I think he would plead with you 
There's a lot of stuff you might want to figure out. You might have a lot of questions around the periphery. But would you at least acknowledge the reality that you're dying in your sin? I think Jesus would say that to you. Now, for the rest of us, for most of us here that are believers, I want you guys to pay attention because Jesus sees that some people believe. He sees that some people in this crowd trust him now, that they believe. And so he talks directly to them. He talks to the believers immediately after it says that they believed. And I think he's talking to us. To the Jews who had believed, he said, if you hold to my teaching, you are truly my disciples. I want you to catch that Jesus makes a distinction between believers and disciples. He's saying to these new believers, I'm, it's good, I'm glad that you believe. You've crossed from death to life, but that isn't the goal for you. That isn't the end for you. He says, if you hold to my teaching, then you can become, then you will be my disciples. So he's making a distinction here between believers and disciples. And I really wrestled with that until I looked up how often and how serious John is about the word believers. And I don't think John would have made some weird switch in the text here. He's very intentional that these people believed and then Jesus looked at believers and he said, now I want you to be disciples. And so many people come into faith in Jesus and think that they have arrived. Like, I got my get out of hell free card. Monopoly's better now. Right? I think that sometimes we just, like, the goal is for you to believe. I think modern church actually has created or allowed this mentality that we want converts. Right? That we want, we want people that would go from not believing to believing, from not being a Christian to being a Christian. And we make it seem like the goal, Jesus' goal for you, is for you to become a Christian. And yet it seems like he barely even caught his breath from the moment he realized that they were believers to saying, I want something more for you. I want something for you. I want you to be a disciple. See, I don't think that, I, I have a point I'm going to put up on the screen. Jesus doesn't want converts or doesn't just want converts. He wants disciples. I think conversion is a, a incredibly important like man if you've put your faith in Jesus I'm excited you're not going to hell let's like not diminish that but that's not where Jesus stops with them and it's not where Jesus wants to stop with you he doesn't just want converts he wants disciples and so says to the Jews who had believed him Jesus said if you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples and you say, so like, what's the difference then, okay? What's the difference between a believer and a disciple? If, if they are different and he wants us to move from one to the other one, what's the difference? A disciple is someone who reorients their life around following Jesus. This word here are these words that say if you hold to in the Greek, it's actually more like abide, which we don't really talk that way anymore, but it's this idea of actually like living in, taking up residence in, being saturated in, like a sponge abides in the water. 
It's so connected that you almost can't tell where one starts and one stops. And Jesus says, if you abide, well, that would necessitate me changing a few things, I think. Right? That would mean I would have to do things a little bit differently if my life needed to be reoriented around following Jesus. If I was actually supposed to live in that and not just come to church and not just pray at mealtimes really when grandma's around and not just fill in the blank, but actually make my life about this thing. That's going to mean I have to change. And see, I think so many Christians never become disciples. I think that our churches are filled with infants, with baby Christians. They believe, but that's it. And nothing ever changes in our lives. See, and here's the problem. Jesus' first disciples, the ones that walked around with him while he was walking around, getting dirty, those people gave up everything. See, following Jesus affected the way that they made a living. It affected where they lived. Following Jesus changed who was in their life. But for most of us, following Jesus changes nothing. See, these disciples gave up everything. Jesus' first disciples also became something different. Fishermen became preachers. Tax collector became an author, right? Wimps became martyrs. One of the sons of thunder ended up writing some of the most prolific stuff on love. But for most of us, we never become anything different. So many Christians never become disciples. And he says that this abiding, this living in, he says, if you hold to my teaching, my word, the Greek there is logos, logos. The idea is that we are actually abiding in or living in, saturated with the things that he said. Imagine that. If we actually changed our life based on what God said to us in his word. If you hold to my word and live in it, then you will be my disciples. And see, here's the problem. It's hard to stay committed, right? How many of you guys have started reading your Bible like a million times, right? It's hard to stay committed to it. It's hard to learn it, too. Sometimes you read it and you're like, this makes no sense, right? I've got teenage boys, and they're finally kind of grasping it, but I remember, you know, a decade ago, we'd open the Bible, and it was like a magic show. It was like this, like, I don't get it. I don't understand. What'd you just do? doesn't make any sense to my brain. Sometimes it's hard. And sometimes it's actually just hard to wrestle with. Sometimes the reason that we don't really saturate ourselves in God's word is that we get to something in there and we don't like it. It says we should be different or act different. And we're like, oh man, I don't want to do that. Or it says something that doesn't fit culturally with how we view the world. And we're like, I don't want to. Just if I just Keep that closed on the coffee table. I won't have to feel that way. So many people look at this and they decide that it's just not worth it. 
right? That it's too hard, that it's, it's o- this ongoing process of having to study my Bible or, or listen to what Jesus said to actually apply these things in my life. That, that means I'm going to have to change things. It's so hard, and I'm already a believer. I'm already going to heaven. I already have the good part. Like, um, pastor, um, I've been doing this for like 40 years, and trust me, you can get by without that part. Right? Like, I, I come to church and I learn some things and like, I know how to say like, amen and um, I know the lyrics to all the songs. I feel this tingly feeling when I'm here, right? You just have all these like reasons why you feel like, oh, I think I could get by without this. And then some other people go, yeah, why would I even do that? Why would I let my life change? Why would I spend all that time in the word what makes it worth it, right? I imagine, uh, I imagine one of those child actors that's like, where's my motivation, <laughs> right? Like, somebody explain to me why we're doing this. Jesus explains it, how convenient. Right after he says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Freedom is the reason that we would do this. You say, it's so hard. I don't want anything to change in my life, right? I don't want to start this new discipline of reading this dumb old book. Why would I do that? Because you're still in bondage. See, Christians love songs like, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Right? I remember when we would be like, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We were so cheesy back in the day. Right? But we love stuff like that where we sing about freedom and we talk about freedom. How many of you guys actually feel free? Right? I think a lot of us struggle with still feeling like we're stuck. So many Christians live life stuck and trapped defeated and Jesus is saying to them don't you want to be free and I think he would say that to us don't you want to be free and then they responded they answered him we're Abraham's descendants we've never been slaves of anyone excuse me first of all they haven't read the Bible right Um, the Egyptians the Babylonians Rome at the moment okay we'll move on how can you say that we shall be set free in other words like What's, in, what's enslaving me? I don't, have anything. I, I don't need to be freed from anything. And Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And he says, Sin is still your master. Now, time out. Wait a minute. I thought that you said that if I believe, my sin was dealt with, right? Didn't you just say that a minute ago, that this whole thing is about belief, right? And if you believe, you are free from the punishment of sin. It's all the way through the book of John. But you aren't free from the power of sin. 
And I think Jesus looks at Christians that have been freed from the punishment of sin, and he says, but you're still bound by the power of sin in your life. And wouldn't you love to be free? Sin has control, right? When you think about a slave, slaves don't do what they want to do. They do what they don't want to do, right? So like lately, I've been convicted about not really being like present with my boys. You know what I mean? Like, I, and maybe it's just me, but they'll come up and they'll talk to me about something and, and like, I barely even look up from my phone. And, and I give them like one word answers, like, hmm, right? Right, like, sure. And I'm not even really making eye contact with them. I'm not even really there. And then I get convicted about that because it's so selfish. What's so important that I'm doing that I can't pay attention, right? Why am I so lazy? Why, why am I not loving them the way that they deserve to be loved? Right? I've been convicted about that. And here's the thing. I don't want to, so like I'll get up in the morning and I pray. I'm like, God, help me to be intentional. But I end up doing it anyways. For some of you guys, it's a porn addiction. Right? You're a slave. You do what you don't want to do. It's like, how many times have you said, I just don't want to do this anymore? And then you click on Pornhub and you're back there again. Or it's alcohol. And for decades of your life, you've been like, man, I just don't want to do this. But then you do it. Or it's pills. Or it's bitterness. You're like, I just don't want to feel this way anymore. But then when you see that person, you're like, I hate you. Right? And just comes right back. Unforgiveness. Maybe you're the person that's really controlling and you're like, man, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to control everything. But then when the opportunity comes up, you just can't help yourself. You don't trust people. You don't have grace. And I think Jesus is saying, I want you to be free from the power of sin just like you're free from the punishment of sin. And so many Christians never live in freedom. And don't hear what I'm, I'm not saying. I'm not saying that there's this pie-in-the-sky opportunity for Christians to just live this perfect life free from the presence and the power of sin. But I am saying that Jesus wants you to get closer and closer to that. He wants you to experience more and more freedom from the power of sin. And here's the thing, it's not a magical experience. I wonder how many of you guys have ever heard somebody, a pastor, say, just give it to God. And how many times have you given it to God? Desperately, maybe. God, please, take this thing from me. I hate it. Please. And then you go do it again. Sometime, minutes later, right? It's not some magical thing where we just go, please, take it. Because Jesus spells it out for us here. Jesus is saying that freedom is found when you've exchanged what you think for what I think. How you think life should be for how I say that life should be. When you've exchanged lies for truth. Back in Verse 31, remember he said to the Jews who had believed, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. 
Freedom is found in the exchange. When the truth of who God is and who we are and how the world works saturates the way that we see things. But we only get that when we actively abide in his word. See the progression here? If you abide in my word, then we make this exchange about truth. Then you get freedom. When we make our life about Jesus and what he taught, when we reorient ourselves around him. But that truth will force us to see the real version of ourselves. Which brings us back to the picture problem at the beginning, right? See, freedom only comes when we let the truth of God's word change how we see ourselves. It's hard to do the disciplines sometimes. It's hard to be in your Bible all the time. It's hard to actually change things. It's hard to let God's perspective win. Which, time out. That's why you need people in your life to help you do it, right? That's why you should be in a relationship with somebody who holds you accountable to these things, somebody who would study with you. Around here we call them iron sharpening iron relationships. You need people to do this because it is hard. And here's my fear. My fear is that you would settle for a cheap substitute of this, that you would settle for going to church, and learning song lyrics, maybe doing a book study instead of a Bible study. See, converts go to church. Converts sing songs, too. Jesus doesn't just want converts, he wants disciples. And so I'm going to put one more thing up here on the screen. You'll never be free from a sin that you won't look at. That's what Jesus started with. With a crowd of unbelievers, he said, you're never going to be free from the punishment of something you won't see. He had to convince them, you're going to die in your sin. And then he looks at the crowd of believers, and he says, you're still slaves, and I want to free you from it. But that freedom comes with truth, and truth's going to force you to look at it. Only when we want freedom more than we want the comfort of lying to ourselves. Only then do we begin to experience freedom. And so today what I want for you is I want for you guys to take an honest look at your life. A candid picture, if you will. Imagine somebody that you didn't even know came by and took a snapshot of your life, but it wasn't how you looked shoving that french fry in your face. It's how you treated your children. It's what you do when you're alone. It's what you're thinking and not saying. What if you took an honest look at your life and there was a candid picture of you? How are you doing at being Jesus' disciple? Or are you simply satisfied with being a convert? Have you lived this Christian life where your only real um, contact with it is at church. But you and Jesus don't spend time together. How are you doing at reading your Bible? We abide in his word, right? I know that that sounds cliche. It almost sounds like something we would teach children. You know why we teach children that? Because this is how we do the Christian walk. How are you doing at that? What would freedom look like in your life? 
I just said right now, just picture freedom for you. What would you be free from? An addiction? An anger problem? What would you be free from? Picture what freedom would look like in your life. And what sin is it that you have stopped looking at? Because here's the thing. At first, you first get that ugly picture of you, and you're like, oh my God. And you almost like fantasize over it. You're like, I've got to change this. This is, really, this is horrible. And you like post it, and you're like, I'm not going to be this person. And then after you've had years and years of ugly pictures, eventually you're like, whatever, just don't show me a picture. Is there a sin like that in your life? Where the first time that it came up, you were just grossed out by it. You're like, how could I do this? How could I be like this? And then as time went on, have you just stopped looking at it? You'll never be free from a sin that you won't look at. But freedom only comes when we let the truth of God's word change how we see ourselves. Freedom comes in that moment when we exchange. I'm not the king. You're the king. I'll get off the throne so that you can get on the throne. But then you get to tell me how we do this, right? I heard a great phrase recently, a tattooable phrase, that says we should die to live. We die to ourselves to live as Christ, right? We have to get off of our own throne, right? Freedom is found in the exchange. Let me pray for you guys really quick. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for moments like this where we get some clarity. I pray that your spirit right now is working in the hearts of everybody here who has trusted you, everybody here who's a believer, a convert, everybody that has your spirit, that you would be working inside of them to show them, man, you've been hiding this sin for so long. I want you to have freedom. Man, I, I just wish that you would spend time with me. Can we get in the Bible? I just pray for your spirit to be moving among us and that we would allow your word to transform who we are and we would become disciples. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, if you would like prayer for this or anything else, um, we try to make it normal around here that our prayer team is hanging out by the front of the stage. You are welcome to come hang out with them and get prayed for. It doesn't have to be about this. It can be about anything. And then also, we have pizza out in the lobby. And so we'd love for you guys to stick around, enjoy each other's company, maybe meet somebody that you have never met before, and then invite them to go do something else, okay? Have a good night.